Shopify grows your business no matter how far or big you grow. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. Whether you're selling your fans' next favorite shirt or an exclusive piece of podcast merch, Shopify helps you sell everywhere. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. Allbirds, Rothy's, Brooklinen, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. Plus, Shopify's award-winning help is there to support your success every step of the way. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash income, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash income now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Welcome back to the Welsh History Podcast, episode 186, Religious Instability and Paranoia. The restoration of King Charles II did not instantly end factional chaos in Britain upon his arrival. The utopia that so many sought for in their version of religious success was so focused on being right that there was very little room for opposition. The 17th century in Europe was twofold. One, you have early colonization going on in the Americas, and secondly, you have religious conflict that goes on throughout most of the century due to the fallout of the Reformation. This, in turn, of course, led to more conflicts and more sickness, which would come from and to the Americas as viral infections worked their way to both sides in different measures. For the indigenous communities in the Americas, it was cataclysmic. Smallpox was one of the first to arrive, probably around 1519, or no or later than that at least, spreading through ever-increasing connections with various tribes, and specifically the Spanish conquistadors moving through Central America. Soon after, to be followed by measles, influenza, chickenpox, bubonic plague, typhus, scarlet fever, pneumonia, and malaria, all of which make their debuts, if you want to call it that, in the Americas in this period. In Europe, the arrival of diseases from America did not have the same impact and are questioned by some as actually having been transferable, though it is thought that syphilis originated in the Americas and returned with Columbus's group spreading among the Europeans with ferocity. And as I said, some researchers continue to dispute that syphilis did not exist before in Europe previous to this. Claims had been made that uh, leprosy was misdiagnosed as this, but when looked at in the scientific and archaeological communities, there is some evidence that shows that it didn't exist before then. What has not changed during this period was the broad use of religious differences along various lines to carry out wars against competing groups and nations. The reason that I suggest religious movements were used for these purposes is because alliances and fighting in various areas 
did not always go along religious lines. Protestant England, for example, might ally with Catholic Spain, or conversely, Lutherans in Germany might fight other Protestants in places like Poland or in Catholics in Austria. There are no easy alliances based on obvious religious backgrounds or upbringings. The French would ally with the Germans who would ally against the Austrians, and all of which worshipped either the same faith, in the case of the Austrians and the French, or different ones, such as the Germans and the French, obviously. The Thirty Years' War, which took place in that period, in specifically Central Europe, was a key point as these various groups fought for control over the Holy Roman Empire. The Holy Roman Empire, of course, was a loose confederation of various German states that had existed since the Middle Ages. They had an emperor who typically came from one of the major kingdoms within the loose confederation, which then all the others tacitly owed their allegiance to. I don't think you could say it was a, a strong um, unified force, but rather it was a, a, a loose confederation, and thus it was more about the prestige of the title rather than the actual title itself being something to lord over others. Austrians typically controlled it through their Habsburg uh, ancestry, but they weren't the only ones, and later Prussians would become dominant in that category as well for a while. And, of course, the Austrians were Catholic, and most of the Northern G German Confederation was a loose alliance of various Protestant groups. Their wars brought governments from Sweden, Poland, France, and Spain, and at times even England, into the middle of them. France often took the side of their Protestant neighbors against their political rivals in Austria. There was no love lost between the monarch in France and the monarch in Austria. This, in 1648, as the English civil wars were coming to an end, eventually led to a peace, which the various powers signed in a series of treaties which would later be called the Peace of Westphalia, effectively ending the Thirty Years' War and dividing up most of Europe amongst the various parties. Weakened by the fighting, Spain was forced to cede control over Portugal and the Dutch Republic, creating two large colonial powers who would become very significant in the New World and out into Asia over the next few years, something that obviously wouldn't have happened had the Spanish been continued to remain a political force. The divisions in Europe during this period were considered to be a driving force in creating religious isolation as many kingdoms and nations sought to foster that division by creating a sense of distrust against other religious and ethnic groups, something, of course, that had pre-existed this period, but continued forward more pronounced. One doesn't have to look very far to see this, because we saw a great deal of persecution in Europe of the Jewish communities and Muslim communities, obviously in the Inquisition and even before that. And so there was a constant state of otherism going on, basically the, the fact that the other or the foreign or the unusual was to be distrusted and disavowed. There was 
claims by some academics that this is the reason why witchcraft becomes a very popular thing and, and something to persecute people for, to blame others for your problems, to claim that other groups are responsible. So if you can point the finger at some random person who may not be politically astute or in some cases in a position of power or in a ethnic or gender position where they're not able to fight back to a degree, it makes it a lot easier to use them and to abuse them in that way. So what this did was create places like Wales that were in the midst of another change in who controlled the area and what religious ideals they were following after the restoration of the monarchy. Effectively, like most places, religion was in upheaval in Wales. There was, of course, the Protestant Reformation and, and what it had done. It forced out a lot of change in a relatively short amount of time. And in the process of that, of course, as the... Uh, revolution took place and then the eventual restoration you had this almost like a tidal wave of protestant puritans and presbyterians who came into wales along with people like the quakers and the baptists who then tried to convert and convince people to come on board to their ideas all of this kind of acted as a massive wave which surged forth but then as it begins to recede as the powers that be switch. You see this sort of backsplash and a arrival of or return of Anglican leadership. And as we mentioned previously, the Anglican followers and leaders sought revenge on those who had followed the Presbyterian ideals of the Puritans. Violence against or blackmarking those who followed religious opinions during the Commonwealth period was something that happened in Wales as much as it did anywhere else. There were parishioners that attacked their clergy for being the wrong type of clergy, both verbally and physically. There were attacks on churches and Bibles that were considered to be the wrong type of Bible to be used in the church. There was a lot of this kind of behavior going on at the time. And it is, to be clear, pretty common on both sides as each sought to dominate the other. And there really is little sympathy that can be shared for either side. Both caused good people misery for their own gain and few cared about the long-term damage that was done because of it. To them, being right was more important than being fair or acknowledging difference. And one of the groups that became a target of all of this was the Society of Friends, or as we come to call them mostly today, the Quakers. They were easy targets for arrest and attack because they had always been seen as kind of fomenting trouble by trying to advance into Wales. Yet all across Wales, there were dissenters of Anglicanism that were being jailed in this period. Over a hundred Quakers, for example, languished in jails across the country in 1660. They were imprisoned simply because they would not take the oath of allegiance to the king, something that, of course, was critical as the monarchy returned. There was this idea of who is the true follower, who is the true person, and the only way that you could acknowledge that you were a true follower of 
the king was to acknowledge that he was the rightful leader of England, and thus this test of allegiance was made. Welsh nobles and their poets would continue to vilify the supporters of Cromwell and the Parliament, going so far as to point to the ancestry of the king as descendant of Llewellyn the Great as a sign of how the king is an heir to the Welsh and how important that dominance is. A slightly stretched assessment as a noble inheritor of the Principality of Wales, effectively. Now, the Stuarts were a lot of things, but they mostly avoided their links to Wales other than for propaganda value. They even went so far as to remove the Welsh Tudor dragon from the coat of arms in favor of the Scottish unicorn, and removed the only acknowledgement of Wales from any regalia of the English crown. Part of the reason why today there was so much debate back in the 1950s about adding Welsh markings or having an official flag came down to this comment that there was no evidence uh, after this point of, of the Welsh in any official capacity, either in a flag or a coat of arms. But this is why. This is what caused this. The Welsh may have considered themselves as kings and queens and inheritors of the true British Empire, but one gets the impression that this ideal was not shared by the monarchy itself. Henry VIII's act of union was, in a way, a cover for this. Some historians argue this point, saying that the distinctive Welsh governance and minor legal code exceptions showed that there was at least a tactic acknowledgement of Wales as a separate place, but those distinctions still appear small compared to the slow, grinding attempts to marginalize and to ethnically change the Welsh language and the Welsh political differences. But in the war over religious observance, the idea that Welsh supported their king, a true Welsh descendant, seemed no less powerful under Charles II than it had been under Henry VII. Suspicion remained that these dissenters, as they were called, would continue to agitate and still advocate for their republic. They were viewed with suspicion by many in the more conservative parts of Wales, and any sign that they were, in quotes, backsliding, would be met with furious response. Even as the Stuarts' grasp on power began to slip, there continued to be this ongoing issue of loyalty to the crown. You can see why so many would strive to find safety in the colonies because of the chaos that this period was creating and the social division and paranoia was foisting upon different parties, be it because of religious reasons or ethnic reasons. When we look at what this had done in Wales, it created a level of distrust amongst the authorities and towards any veteran of the New Model Army or Republican supporters in general. Former military men in the cause of Cromwell were marked with suspicion. If there was even a slight bit of concern about these men, they would find themselves at the end of an enforcement and search, and seizure in some cases. In a period without a police force, where armies, bailiffs, and sheriffs were the enforcers of the law, often any evidence of pistols, rifles, or swords would be followed with charges of sedition because the people they accused were former soldiers under Cromwell and should not have access to these weapons. 
as they were considered to be tailor-made for rebellion. Of course, ignoring the fact that in an era where there wasn't a standard set of police and there wasn't protection on the roads, they would be still something of a necessity. But nonetheless, that was the accusation and it would be enforced vigorously. If you're like me and eating healthy is a bit of a problem, let me bend your ear a little bit to eat stress-free this spring with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes. Choose from a weekly menu of 35 options, including popular options like Calorie Smart, Kato, Protein Plus, or Vegan and Veggies. Also, discover more than 60 add-ons every week like breakfasts, on-the-go lunch, snacks, and beverages to help you stay fueled and feel good all day long. What are you waiting for? Get started today and fuel up for your springtime goals. Get chef-prepared meals on the table in two minutes with Factors ready-to-eat meals so you can get back to doing what you love this spring. Also, if you're looking for gourmet meals, try meals that feature premium ingredients like filet mignon, shrimp, truffle butter, broccolini, and asparagus. We're celebrating Earth Day all month long. Look out for the Earth Month Eats badge on the menu for our lowest carbon footprint meals. Head to factormeals.com slash welshhistorypod50 and use the code welshhistorypod50 to get 50% off your first month plus 20% off your next month. That's code welshhistorypod50 at factormeals.com slash welshhistorypod50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box while your subscription is active. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. We mentioned previously that as the king returned, he also issued general amnesties for those who had been on the other side, yet were not specifically involved in the execution of his father. Those, of course, would find themselves either at the end of an axe or a rope, or in some cases just tossed into prison for as long as they lived. This obviously was meant to be seen as a way for the country to return to stability, but as mentioned, little by little, the old opponents would find themselves at the end of suspicion and doubt as the powers that be returned and began to look at these men with a jaundiced eye. Vavasor Powell, for example, the old Welsh preacher, continued to lecture against the monarch and Anglicanism whenever he got the chance. His continued opposition to the restored monarchy immediately placed him in the sights of those loyal to the king who did not show mercy, and because of this, it cost him his freedom. The new government feared his influence and rounded up a number of his followers at Bala. This, of course, did nothing to stop Powell. After a period of imprisonment at Shrewsbury, he resumed his preaching in June of 1660 and was summarily rearrested. He was not alone in this, as there were a number of others who struggled to call out the monarch and his government whenever possible, 
of Vavasor's previous position in the former government, and specifically his obvious uh, leadership in Wales, meant he was a natural target. If you could get him confined and buttoned down, maybe it would stand as a lesson to the rest, would obviously be the thought process. Powell was always opposed to the king, or even the would-be king in Cromwell before him, and likely felt emboldened by that position. He was not a military leader, but simply a preacher, so it was difficult, even in the 17th century, to simply execute him for his beliefs. But, consistently, Powell appeared to desire to be a martyr for his cause. Powell refused to take the oaths of supremacy and allegiance at Shrewsbury, which would have made him likely a free man. He continued to write while in prison, publishing a repudiation of the authority of the bishops, as well as the Book of Common Prayer. He would spend a couple of years in Fleet Prison, where he wrote The Bird in the Cage Chirping, a book which featured attacks on the current monarch and a defense of his own era. On September 30th, 1662, he was then moved to South Sea Castle and remained there for the next five years. Eventually, he was released in the autumn of 1667, completely unreformed. Powell had long been associated with a group known as the Fifth Monarchists. This group had believed that the execution of Charles I in January of 1649 marked the end of the so-called Fourth Monarchy. These monarchies were represented in the Book of Daniel as the periods or rule before the final Fifth Monarchy or reign of Christ on earth. They did some interesting measurements on what constituted the monarchy and how they worked. Certainly, when you look at the ideas that are stored in Daniel, you know he's not talking about the English crown, but nonetheless, that was kind of their, their, their standpoint, was that the English monarchy's fall was the end of a major last empire on earth before the coming of the reign of Christ in his millennial glory. This, of course, meant that these members viewed the institution of the Protectorate and the Stuart Restoration as preventing the coming of this fifth monarchy, and they believed it was their duty to force this apocalyptic vision upon the world. Some members felt that this then justified military action to force this beginning of the so-called fifth monarchy. Over the years, this lean into a vowed religious revolution meant that they were actively persecuted by both governments and never became a mass movement. Many of their remaining leaders were executed after participating in Venner's Rising, which happened in January of 1661. Yet, even six years later, Powell was said to be offering these men hope. After spending seven years in prison, he would start preaching almost immediately, and in March of 1668, he was reported to be preaching to a congregation of fifth monarchists at Blue Anchor Alley in London. In September of that year, Powell preached to people in Newport, Monmouthshire, and Merthyr Titville. It was that later meeting that finally saw him at the mercy of the law once again. At the instigation of the incumbent of Merthyr, Powell was arrested once again. Accusations were that he was seen preaching to hundreds of armed men, that being the key, 
which immediately put him in association with revolutionaries and revolt, something that was completely unacceptable in Charles II's England. On October 17th, he was examined by deputy lieutenants meeting in Cowbridge in the Vale of Glamorgan before these representatives of the government and former military opponents Powell defended himself against the charge of unlawful preaching. His ability to preach had created someone who could defend himself with a great degree of success, much to the annoyance of his enemies. Powell was then re-examined in November 8th of 1668, and eventually again in January 13th of the following year. Powell managed to create a character profile as someone who was not disloyal, but simply unwilling to avoid standing up for his faith. He claimed he resisted taking the oaths of supremacy and allegiance on the grounds that he had already taken them before, and they had been officiated by an officer without lawful or legal authority. These examinations, or conventions as Powell called them, had one inevitable outcome. He was returned to prison once again, this time in Cardiff. At an attempt made by his friends to remove him away from Wales and back to London, where they thought his appeal would see better success simply because of its closeness to the monarch and getting him away from his opponents in Wales. That belief or understanding or thought process was incorrect, as by May of 1669, he was once again interned in Fleet Street, although he was able to move around freely in under parole during the day he would have to return to the prison each night. Eventually, Powell, the great Welsh Puritan, became very sick and in 1670 passed away, having not achieved any of his spiritual goals by bringing about the millennial dawn he hoped to see in the reign of Christ on earth. But at the same time, his role in Puritanism and his Defense of his religion in Wales goes down as one of the more important contributions in this period in Wales, and something that should not be ignored because of how important he was, both as a leader and as an opponent in this period. And much of what we know about this period in Wales comes from people commenting, attacking, defending this man and his ideals. And with that, I'd like to thank you all for listening. I hope you have a great day. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can always reach me at the Welsh History Podcast at gmail.com. You can follow me on Twitter at Welsh History Pod or on Facebook at Welsh History, facebook.com forward slash Welsh History Podcast. And of course, as always, if you'd like to help contribute to the uh, acquiring of materials to help me uh, prepare for these episodes uh, you can do that on patreon at patreon.com forward slash welsh history thank you all for listening i always as always hope you have a great day and uh, we'll talk to you in the next episode bye-bye welsh history podcast is a member of the evergreen podcast network to find more information on them you can do so at evergreenpodcast.com thanks for listening Welcome to Anthology of Heroes, the podcast that explores the most pivotal moments of history through the eyes of those who lived it. In this podcast, we don't spend our time recounting facts and dates. 
Instead, we follow in the footsteps of national heroes, kings, or ordinary people who lived and breathed the moments that shaped our world. We're not hemmed in by eras, borders, or religions. Instead, we seek out the tales of those who defied the odds and fought passionately for their beliefs. Whether they're right or wrong is up to you to decide. From Vercingetorix's doomed rebellion against Rome, to Osceola's unshakable war against the USA, all the way up to the inspiring Sobibor concentration camp uprising in World War II, each episode is an immersive listening experience, blending music and sound effects to really draw you into the story. Our episodes go for about 45 minutes, making them perfect for your commute, and are crafted using a wealth of historical sources, which I list on our website if you want to learn more. I'm the host, Elliot Gates, and I'm thrilled to have you joining me as we uncover history's hidden gems and illuminate the faded pages of our past. Look out for the Anthology of Heroes podcast on Spotify, Apple Music, or anywhere else you get your podcasts from.